Namaskar. Welcome to the first Satya Samvad, an initiative under the aegis of the Infinity Foundation. Satya, or truth, is the bulwark of the Bharatiya civilization ethos. To look closely at truth is to look at its assertion, its negation, its nuances, and even its paradoxes. Satya Samvad is a platform for exploring the truth in various points of civilizational and humanitarian interest, both ontological as well as epistemological, even as we work towards a sustainable and dharmic tomorrow. The partition of India and Pakistan stands as a monumental paradox in the annals of history, yet mired in unresolved tensions and consequences. Ostensibly, the partition sought to resolve religious and cultural schisms, aiming to establish sovereign states reflective of different premises, one an Islamic Republic, while the other being a secular state. However, beneath this veneer of nationhood lay deep-seated fractures in communal identities and historical grievances. The partition revealed itself as a profound paradox, an exercise intended to foster stability and peace, but which unleashed unprecedented violence and displacement. It showed the frailty of political solutions in addressing complex social realities, and its aftermath has yielded a tapestry of narratives yet imbued with its own truth of migration, loss, and identity upheaval. These truths often conflicting and contested underscore the ontological complexity of historical events and the subjective nature of memory and interpretation. For today's interaction, we have with us uh, Sri Deepak Srinivasan. Deepak is a data engineer and public markets investor with a good understanding of the financial, IT, and energy sectors. He has recently been writing about and speaking on the dharmic heritage and history particularly in and of the displaced Hindu communities in Pakistan. Uh, we welcome you, Deepak. Okay. Thank, you. Thank you. So when we talk about satya or truth, as we had started with, in the relative sense, one important aspect of this has been the philosophy of flux, as a Heraclitian would say. This philosophy highlights the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of relative truths, to the point that the truth may evolve to a position so as to contradict its initial statement. Something similar happened with the nature of the Indian National Congress in the late 19th century. The Indian National Congress, founded by Alan Octavian Hume, initially served to safeguard British rule by preemptively diffusing potential threats like the 1857 uprising. However, it quickly evolved beyond British control, attracting Indian intellectuals and activists who believed in the British sense of morality and hoped for peaceful reforms. Despite Western historians' incredulity, these Indians saw virtue in their oppressors, often unfortunately influenced by dharmic values, English education, and a reluctance for violent conflict. Under the leadership of Surendranath Banerjee, the INC transformed into a formidable force prompting viceroy difference dismay. In fact, the second session of the INC in 1886, which was led by Banerjee himself, as well as Bal Gangadhar Tilak, marked a turning point, symbolizing the resurgence of nationalistic fervor deeply rooted in India's cultural renaissance. Notable figures like Swami Vivekanand and Bankim Chandra Chattopadhyay contributed to this period of heightened nationalist sentiment. Rashtraguru Surendranath Banerjee's nationwide tour galvanized India's independence movement with a pivotal stop at Multan. Multan's contribution emblematic of unity and diversity resonated deeply in the struggle for independence. 
However, its significance is also entwined with the complexities of the India-Pakistan partition, highlighting the dual nature of liberation struggles, marked by both triumph and tragedy. It also had its share of witnessing the philosophy of flux. For a city where Sardar Karan Narayan Singh's uh, son became an anglophilic icon during the British Raj, and was even awarded titles like his knighted sir by Her Majesty the Queen of England, there was very soon again a simmering sentiment of anger and agitation against the colonizers. Multan's journey again brought forth that enduring quest for justice and emancipation that it had always stood for since times immemorial. What do you have to say about this, Deepak? That's a very interesting question. So to understand why Multan and Punjab were particularly important for this, we have to go all the way back to 1857 and the Indian Rebellion. Prior to 1857, the British Indian Army was comprised of three major groups. There's the Bengal Army in the north, which included the UP, Bihar, and Bengal areas, the Madras Army in the south, which included most of South India, and the Bombay Army in the middle, which included mainly Gujarat and Maharashtra. Punjabis were only 10% of the standing army, and they were largely relegated to frontier forces tasked with policing the Afghan border at the time. But after 1857, this dynamic rapidly changed. The Hindu and Muslim elites who formed the bulk of the Bengal army were largely purged, and the Bombay and Madras armies were significantly reduced in size. In their place, the British recruited a more loyal army, consisting mainly of tribes that existed on the periphery of India. The idea was that they would have few, if any, conflicting loyalties, when tasked with policing the wider region for the British. So they recruited mainly from the Punjabis and to a lesser extent to the, from the Gurkhas, the Pashtuns and the Hazaras. So it was the Punjabis, particularly the Sikh Punjabis, who served as the bulwark of this new British Indian army. Aloof from both Hindus and Muslims, indifferent to the Mughals and Mara Mughal and Maratha empires of old, the Sikhs were the ideal soldiers for the British. And they demonstrated as much during their suppression of the 1857 rebellion. By 1900, nearly half of British India's soldiers were Punjabi. By 1930, the figure peaked at over 54%. When adding the additional Indian periphery regions described above, nearly 75% of the British Indian army was comprised of these frontier peoples. So this is the context in which Surendranath Banerjee was operating. So now if we look at his life, he is born in Calcutta, the capital of Bengal presidency. He goes to college, uh, university college, London. He returns and he wants to work for the ICS. He takes the exam. He is uh, disqualified. And then he goes to court. And eventually he's posted as, a, as an assistant ma magistrate. He also at, uh, attends classes uh, in England where he is dismissed. And he feels that it's because of racial discrimination. So he returns to India feeling bitter about it and disillusioned with the British. When he was in England, he studied the works of uh, scholars like Edmund Burke and Italian nationalist Giuseppe Mazzini. So on the basis of this, he develops nationalist ideas and forms what he calls what is called the Indian National Association with his friend Anand Mohan Bose. These, this was one of the earliest political organizations of its kind. And along with this, there were other organizations formed in Madras, in Pune and other, other parts of the country. Eventually, when the INC is formed, it's these organizations that come together to form the INC. So when we say that it was the British who formed it, there is an element of truth to that. But it was also, there was, there was a deeper Indian background to it, which is why it so quickly changed in character from being uh, 
the the safety valve for the British to becoming a robust national movement. And so when Surendranath Banerjee was going on his nationwide tour, he had a very clear understanding that unless you are able to get uh, people in those areas where the army recruitment happens to form nationalist sentiments, you will not be able to evict the British from India. Because even in 1857, that was that was the understanding, right? You had to foment uh, a mutiny in the army. And if you could do that with enough people serving in the army, then the British rule would end. So with, with that logic in mind, Surinath Banerjee traveled all across the country and gave speeches trying to bring diverse communities together to form a shared political goal and aspiration and trying to promote goodwill between different communities, particularly Hindus and Muslims. So he would preach to the people saying, the great doctrine of peace and goodwill between Hindus and Muslims, Christians and Parsis, between all sections of our community's progress. Let the word unity be inscribed therein, characters of glittering gold. There may be religious difference between us, there may be social difference between us, but there's a common platform where we may all meet, the platform of our country's welfare. And so he used the organization to tackle various issues like the age limit for Indian students appearing for ICS exams. And he talked about the racial discrimination perpetrated by British officials. Then he, he bought a paper called The Bengali and started publishing. He was arrested and held in contempt of court, which led to protests and hartals erupting all over Bengal, as well as in Indian cities on the other side, Lahore, Amritsar, uh, Faizabad, Pune, Agra. So because he was the first Indian journalist to be imprisoned, this leads to significant mass awakening among the people. And the INC expanded considerably during this time. Hundreds of delegates from all over India came to attend uh, its annual conference in Calcutta. And he merges his Indian National Association with the INC and later becomes the Congress president as well. Right. He is important because later on, uh, it is in Bengal where he came from that the Anushilan Samiti is formed. And they have the same strategy. And this continues and they have the seditious conspiracy and so on. And finally, Rash Bihari Bose starts the Indian National Army and then Subhash Chandra Bose takes it over and uh, they, they fight uh, along with the Japanese in the Second World War. And then the INA trials happen and that leads to another mass awakening which leads to the mutiny in the Royal Indian Navy. And finally, that is what convinces the British that they can no longer hold on to India. So the awakening right. that, that Banerjee started was so important in the movement. Right. And uh, thanks for that uh, contextualization. I think it's very important to look at the continuity of this um, entire um, exercise, entire kind of movement. Um, also very important to highlight that it was because of the naval mutiny of 1946, which even Clement Attlee, in fact, um, at one point admitted to, uh, was the important uh, element that led to the British um, leaving India eventually. Um, coming back to Multan, uh, because that has been our um, center of discussion for the last session that we had, um, where we looked at the more ancient and medieval kind of aspects of Hindus and Multan and how things have progressed thereof. Um, so at the end of the 20th century, there was a shift of the demographic balance um, with the Muslims becoming more of a majority in Greater Multan. 
And uh, according to the 1881 population census, for instance, uh, Muslims accounted for about 53%, I think 52.84 to be precise, uh, in Multan city's total population, uh, while the Hindus were about 4363 um, However, the census of 1891 revealed a decrease in that um, fraction. And this decline was attributed to Hindu to Christian conversions um, with the likes of Mrs. Annie Briggs, for instance, uh, who was said to pursue proselytizing curriculum in educational institutions like the CMS school in Multan, uh, as well as the patronage for Muslim elites by the British. And I think it is very important to highlight this element of patronage and how it led to the fostering of and the festering or thereof of uh, these communal tensions that happened to be um, ubiquitous, may, might I say, across South Asia in that period. Um, so consequently, the Muslim population fraction increases, of course, um, and local Muslim elite families like Gardezi Sayyids, for instance, um, Qureshis of Kabirani, Badozais and Razadgans were favored by the British with policies such as the Court of Wards Management and Land Alienation Act of 1900. And it is very important to highlight this particular act because it relates to the broader discussion on the work boards, for instance, and the properties thereof, and the ways in which these various Muslim elite families are related to the social dynamics and the governmental kind of aspect of that period in Bhutan. So Sayyid Murad Shah, for instance, from the Gardezi Sayyids, was one of the first local contacts to have served the British when Multan was surrounded in 1848. And uh, he was, of course, handsomely rewarded in 1864 when he was appointed as the native agent of Bahawalpur state. Uh, his son, Sayyid Hassan Baksh Gardezi, contributes about 8,000 rupees for the First World War Fund to the British government. And also, very important here, establishes this uh, madrasa, which is by the name of Babul Ul Ulum, in Multan itself. Uh, there are various other kind of incidences, for instance, in the 1848 to 49 siege of Multan. Makhdum Shah Mahmud, a descendant of Bahauddin Zakaria Multani, supports the British against the Sikhs and gets a lot of various different kinds of rewards, which includes, uh, I, I believe, a large land grant as well. So, uh, and, and there is, of course, the likes of Makhdum Shah Mahmud himself, who looked at um, how he could inform the British during the 1857 war and help in the recruitment of police forces as well. So, um, and the way in which the patronage worked kind of uh, uh, pitted a certain community and its aristocrats, nobles, and various other elite families uh, against the others, so to say, and thereby entrenched this idea of othering therein within the social fabric of that place, essentially. However, on the flip side, what is very important, and I would like you to kind of address this as well, there, there is this very seminal report by the name of the Hunter Education Report of 1882, uh, which was to look at how modern Western education can help the, the various communities in that area at that point. And uh, unfortunately, the Muslims in that area uh, do not kind of get onto that proverbial bandwagon of sorts. And in this backdrop, there are various traditional revivalist and modern reformist movements that try to mobilize these, uh, the Muslims in that area uh, for their cultural and social pursuits, often turning to politicking for uh, the Muslims. And this is where the seed is laid for the subsequent actions, such as the Muslim League's call for direct action and the various um, incidences of violence that happens during the partition and the contrasting reception of Mahatma Gandhi and M.S. Gowalkar during their visits to Punjab in 1947 kind of shows us the differing perceptions of what is self-help and the way forward for Hindus and Sikhs in this backdrop. 
So uh, Gandhi, for instance, faces hostile sloganeering from Hindus and Sikhs in Lahore, uh, reminiscent of his reception in Karachi in 1931. And conversely, Golkar is welcomed enthusiastically, might I say, uh, in Lahore, Multanpur, Sialkot, and Lialpur by various, uh, I mean, thousands of impassioned Hindu and Sikh youth. And this contrast underscores the recognition among Hindus and Sikhs that self-help was probably the only recourse uh, amidst the tumult of partition. So um, just to bring you back to the center point of this discussion, which is to look at the demographic dynamics, right? So as per the 1941 census, even in 1941, there was a significant amount of Hindu population in places like Quetta cantonment, right? With 42% uh, in Chaman cantonment with 62%. Uh, in Lorelei Cantonment with 34%, and then in Fort Sanderman with 47%. So in this kind of backdrop, right, where there is a demographic fluctuation of sorts in the early part of the 20th century, um, how did the Hindus work with the resultant changes, right, uh, and which was uh, very immense, might I say, uh, in terms of its political um, repercussions, as well as the fundamental alteration of the social fabric of society therein? So this, uh, you would have to go back to the process that happened before partition to understand when Hindus get a sense that there is going to be a partition and then how they respond to that. Because if you look at the Northwest Frontier province, the majority of Hindus and Sikhs in the province, province had left their homes even before the referendum was held to decide whether it would be part of India or Pakistan. And by the time the referendum is held, of course, uh, it is boycotted by the Kudai Khidmatgars. And uh, it is not considered legitimate by, by a lot of scholars because the turnout was much lower than in the 1946 elections when the Congress won the province. But Pakistan emerges as the uh, winner of that referendum. In Balochistan, on the other hand, it was not a British province, so it didn't have an elected government. Instead, it had uh, the Khanate of Kalat being ruled by the Khan and then the other uh, three uh, Balochistan states, essentially being tributaries of the Khanate of Kalat. And there also, there was never a democratic vote. And so Balochistan actually becomes part of Pakistan in March of 2008, when, uh, sorry, 1948, when uh, Pakistan orders its army to move into the Baloch coastal region of Pasni, Jivani, and Turbat. And that's where they... Uh, essentially force the Khan to capitulate and announce that the Khan of Kalat had agreed to merge a state with Pakistan. So even there, by this point, it had become very clear uh, by early 1948 that it would become part of Pakistan. By, by January of that, of that year, it was very clear. And so the Hindus had essentially fled during the interim period between 1947 independence and 1948. It was very haphazard. It was, uh, they had to leave behind all of their property. They had to, uh, they did not know if they would make it to the other side safely. Um, but they all had to leave in that process. When it comes to Multan specifically, uh, it had become clearer, clear even earlier because there was a major riot in uh, Multan in 1947 March. So when, when that happened uh, and um, the unionist government that had been elected in Punjab with uh, outside support from the Congress and Akali Dal, when, when the government fell and uh, 
the government machinery at that time was largely manned by Muslims in Pakistan. They knew that they could not depend on the government to protect them anymore and that it would inevitably descend into anarchy. So after the violence that, that happened at the time and the uh, lack of resources and personnel that, that the government had to even prevent the violence, the Hindus had a simple choice. They could either put their safety and future in the hand of the Muslim League or they could take steps to assist themselves. And in that process, uh, the RSS had a major role to play in helping them evacuate and make it safely to the other side. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, it's very important to um, look at the various um, aspects in terms of the provinces of Pakistan, uh, current day Pakistan as well, uh, in terms of the legislative structures in place, as well as the uh, rapidly changing dynamics within society itself. Because, for instance, within Punjab uh, itself, there were a lot of different um, uh, factors and facets to what was happening, uh, particularly as I had, as I've already mentioned about this uh, aspect of elites and how they were kind of given a certain patriotism. Uh, but also what you just mentioned about the uh, the fluxes, so to say, just to uh, use that word again. Um, we have discussed about this idea of the philosophy of the flux, where a truth kind of becomes its contrast. Uh, but often when we are talking about dialectical reasoning, uh, this also looks at examining opposing viewpoints, right? Looking at contradictions, for instance, and working towards a more comprehensive understanding of um, any narrative or any any concept. And I think it is there that we need to look at this whole narrative about the need for partition and the need for such a segregation in, in, in greater detail. So Multan in particular and Greater Punjab, for instance, presents these internal inconsistencies uh, in the narrative for uh, a modern Islamic state carved out from British India. And a particularly fascinating discourse arises from looking at these radical Islamic parties so Islamic ideology was invoked in Punjab, very interestingly, uh, not by the Muslim League as much as by the Majlise Aharar and the Jamate Islami. Uh, the Jamate Islami and Aharar had virulently condemned the Muslim League and um, Jinnah, of course, and uh, they used Islam to oppose the creation of Pakistan, in fact. The key question was whether in Pakistan the system of government would be based on the sovereignty of God or on the popular sovereignty. And as per these parties, in the case of the former, it would be Pakistan. And just to use a term that was used at that time, otherwise it would be Na Pakistan. So uh, you have mentioned about the Pashtun politician and uh, independence activist uh, Khan Abdul Ghaffar Khan of the Khudaya Khidmatgar. And he viewed this proposal to partition India as un-Islamic and contradicting a common history, right? In which uh, Muslims considered India as their homeland over, um, for, for over a millennium. And uh, there were various others as well, like, for instance, the Khaksar movement leader, Alama Mashriki, uh, who had opposed the partition of India, sharing a similar sentiment. And in that period, Diobandis had, in fact, gone so far as to refer to the Treaty of Hodebiya, uh, uh, which was made by between the Muslims and the Quraysh of Mecca, and highlighted that that treaty promoted the mutual interaction between the two communities, thus allowing for more opportunities for Muslims to preach their religion to the Quraysh through peaceful tabligh, as they had put, put, put it out there at that time. So given that the Wafakul Madaris, the Diobani Madrasa Union, which was located in Multan, it was only natural to wonder the impact of Jinnah's narrative in this area, right? And so um, I would like to know from you, uh, given your... Um, uh, exploration of this aspect of um, uh, independence of the independence movement uh, and the history of South Asia. 
uh, as to what were the ground level sentiments and movements uh, both for and against partition in Pakistan, uh, particularly in Multan and Greater Punjab. So everything you said is true, but I don't think the, the sentiment against Pakistan can be overstated either. Because the Majlis-e-Ahrar-e-Islam exactly. won two seats in Punjab out of a total of 175 in, in the election held in 1946. Whereas Congress won 50, 51, Muslim League won 73, Akalis won 22, and the Unionist Party won 20. There were seven independents. Muslim League did not have a majority of its own. And perhaps in Western Punjab, what is today Pakistan's Punjab, it did have a majority. Now, you could argue that it was not a, a universal adult franchise electorate. It, it was a very limited electorate that was able to vote for these parties. But the ground level sentiment is seen by just how much ground support Muslim League rallies consistently had during that year. And but, it's... but Deepak, just to, just to intervene here, I would wonder whether parliamentary democracy, right, and, and, and the political process as we know it, uh, is always reflective of the popular sentiment. Because, for instance, some of these parties, in fact, in fact going into the 1950s and 60s, had significant um, street kind of, you know, mobilization of sorts, right? And uh, uh, this was always a cadre-based kind of entity, so to say. It was not quite a, you know, populist uh, kind of, you know, configuration. Um, so it, it was not reflective in the democratic process, definitely, um, as we have seen uh, in, in successive kind of um, elections. But uh, was it really that understated uh, at, at in Multan itself? Well, I would, I would, I would, I would give it to you that uh, it's an imponderable. We we do not know what would have happened if if a full electorate had been able to vote because Multan had a forty-two percent non-Muslim right. population, which definitely would not have voted for Pakistan. So if you'd held a referendum in in Multan, chances are it would have voted to go with India because you just needed eight percent of uh, the population who were Muslims to vote with the vote with India rather than Pakistan. So if you had gone on a district-by-district district referendum, chances are that uh, Lahore, Multan, a lot of these uh, urban clusters would have probably sided with India. But because the nature of the election was not such, it was held at the provincial level. I think, at, at least in the rural areas, all the evidence does suggest that there was very significant support for the Muslim League. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and of course, that, that involves a lot of um, um, interplay of various uh, elements in there. Uh, for instance, the whole idea of um, the educational institutions that were in place and how it was used to mobilize the youth as well at various points in time, um, as well as various charitable organizations as well, which even till date, and we will come to that in a, in a subsequent kind of uh, question or a point of discussion, uh, how that has also influenced this entire process as well. Um, but I would like to kind of go back a little um, and uh, look at this watershed moment in the Indian independence movement, uh, which came with the introduction of their Nehru report in 1928. And uh, generally, Muslim popular opinion was against the proposals of the Nehru report. And um, this just added to the fire that had already stirred up in 1927, just a year before, in places such as Multan, Amritsar, Kohat, and Lahore. And it was rather fascinating how Maulana Habibur Rahman, the president of Majlis-e-Arar-e-Islam, spoke of emulating Nehru's thinking on socialism, but also encouraged villagers to purchase groceries only from Muslim shopkeepers, uh, as per this uh, book by Muhammad Omar Farooq, uh, which is called Maulana Gulsher Shahid Savane Khidmat. 
And uh, so such schemes mobilize the Muslim community against the, uh, for instance, the Vadiras also, or the Hindu moneylenders in rural Punjab. So it is also interesting to note that the Hindu Mahasabha in this whole period was revived in December 1922, uh, after what was a period of relative dormancy. And uh, this was particularly with respect to two uh, causes, two causal kind of elements. One was that of the Mopla disturbance, as we know, and uh, the other was the riots in Multan on Muharram. So it was widely reported that Hindus were the disproportionate victims in both these incidences. And uh, even during and after partition in all this time, Jawaharlal Nehru is said to have done little in terms of diplomacy or ground level support. And this is where I think you had mentioned in one of your responses uh, how the Rashtriya Swayam Savak Sangh and the Akali Dal uh, were the most proactive on this front. So, for instance, Professor A.N. Bali, who has written extensively about this, uh, writes about how the RSS arranged for food, medical help and clothing and took care in every possible way. In fact, they even had, um, if I recall correctly, firefighting teams in different cities and towns. Uh, they had various uh, lorries and buses to carry the escaping since, uh, Hindus and Sikhs and uh, also had posted defense teams in railway trains to secure uh, all the commuters who were using certain kinds of trains. And it is amazing to know that there were more than 1,500, 1,500 RSS daily shakhas that were happening in this time uh, with more than one lakh swayam sevaks in undivided Punjab. So this was in sharp contrast to uh, the stage they had started with when I'm, uh, I believe there were three pracharaks who were initially sent from Nagpur, um, uh, them being KD Joshi, Digambar Patarkar and Moreshwar Munje. So in all of this, if you were to look at how the ground level, um, you know, this um, back and forth, basically, right, uh, of um, uh, the way in which the Majlis-e Arar Islam was trying to kind of mobilize people uh, within the Muslim community uh, and the response of the Hindus at a very grassroots level, right? That is a very interesting dynamics that was happening in Punjab at that period of time. And so I would like to know from you, how do you see this socio-political turbulence uh, in the context of Hindus in Multan and Greater Punjab? <clears throat> This is an excellent question, and I'm really glad you brought it here because this is such an understudied aspect of our history. Uh, but before we go there, I do want to make one other point about uh, the, the previous uh, answer. In 1937, when elections are held in all provinces of India, Muslim League actually is uh, very low in support in most of the provinces, especially the Pakistan provinces. Uh, so in Bengal, it gets 43 seats out of 250. In Bihar, it gets zero seats. In Assam, it gets 10 seats. In Bombay, it gets 18 seats. In the central provinces, what is today Madhya Pradesh, it got five seats. In Madras, it got nine seats. In Northwest Frontier Province, it had zero. Orissa, it had zero. Punjab, it had two seats. Sindh, it had zero seats. And United Provinces, it had 29 seats. But by 1946, it gets a much higher percentage of seats. So in Assam, out of 34 seats, it wins 31 seats. That's 91% win percentage. In Bengal, it gets 113 out of 119 Muslim seats. In Bihar, it gets 34 out of 40 Muslim seats. In Bombay, it gets 30 out of 30 Muslim seats. In the central provinces, it gets 13 out of 14 Muslim seats. Madras, it gets 29 Muslim seats out of 29. Northwest Frontier Province, again an exception, 17 out of 36 Muslim seats. So it doesn't get a majority there, as we discussed. Orissa, it gets all four seats. Punjab, it gets 74 out of 86 Muslim seats. Sindh, it gets 28 out of 34 Muslim seats. And United Provinces, it gets 54 out of 66 Muslim seats. So in that sense, the, the, the argument is that there was a groundswell of support across India for the formation of Pakistan among Muslims. 
whether that actually could be considered as democratically illegitimate, I would not make that argument because uh, we did not have universal adult franchise and it's entirely possible that it was just the, given that it was just the elites that were voting, it's possible that their preferences were different from that of the hoi uh, polloi, so to speak. But that is something that we cannot establish one way or another. So it's uh, one of those imponderables about history. Now to come to the RSS and their role in, in uh, what happened in Bengal, we have to understand that the RSS has been active uh, in, in Punjab for decades at that point. It, it, was, uh, it, it was set up in 1925 by uh, Hedgevar. And by uh, 1940s, there were more than 1,500 RSS daily shakas, and the daily attendance included more than 1 lakh swayam sevaks. So that was all across Punjab uh, on both sides. And uh, even though it was still at a nascent stage in terms of organizational outreach, what they did was that uh, Madhavrao Mule was appointed as the Pranth Pracharak in, in Punjab around 1940. And in the run-up to India being divided, the RSS realized that they need to prepare Hindus and Sikhs of undivided Punjab to face the inevitable that had been imposed on them. So for them, it was not something that they wanted, but it was something they recognized was happening, and they had to take action to save the Hindus and Sikhs. So the Sarsang Chalak at the time, M.S. Golwalkar, also known as Guruji, uh, he, along with the Pracharak Baba Sahib Apte and uh, Bala Sahib Yoras, who later became Prachar, uh, Sarsang Chalak, they extensively toured the entire country before partition. And hundreds of young men and middle-aged people began joining the song, especially in cities and villages pre-partition Punjab. Rawalpindi, Lahore, Peshawar, Amritsar, Jalandhar, all of these cities. And then there was a report in the English Tribune where it was said that Punjab is a sword arm of Hindustan and RSS is a sword arm of Punjab. And the Muslim, uh, Muslim League's mouthpiece, Dawn, reacted by saying if Congress leadership wishes to receive cooperation from Muslims, it must ban the Sangh immediately. So Guruji goes to Sialkot, to Montgomery after touring Multan in 1946 and 47. He entered Sindh from Punjab and the province of Sindh had about 80 shakas at that time. There were 52 pracharaks. One of them was Lal Krishna Advani, later Deputy Prime Minister of India. Uh, so to implement the plan to partition India, the British government had uh, divided the army and the police on the basis of religion a few months prior to the final act of partition. So the areas falling under Sindh and West Pakistan and East Bengal were all put under the command of a Muslim-dominated army police combined. The Hindus in these areas were on tenterhooks. They were sitting on a powder keg with no one to be their saviors. So that is where Guruji takes the initiative to reach out to these Hindus. And he sets up the Punjab Relief Committee and the Hindu Sah Sahayata Committee. So the center of activity for both of these was initially Lahore. And uh, the Punjab state Sarsang Chalak Rai Bahadur Badridas was the chairman and Dr. Gokulchan Narang was the treasurer of these communities. So in uh, Professor A.N. Bali's book, Now It Can Be Told, he writes that the RSS was ever present in Punjab. Who came to the rescue in these difficult times to protect the people, except these young men known as RSS? They arranged for the safe passage of women and children in each and every mohalla in every city of the state. They arranged for their food, medical help and clothing and took care in every possible way. They organized firefighting teams in different cities and towns. They arranged for lorries and buses to carry the escaping Hindus and Sikhs and posted defense teams in railway trains. He even wrote that Congress leaders took the help of the RSS. They patrolled relentlessly in different Hindu and Sikh localities. 
It trained people in self-defense. They were the first ones to reach these terrified people, first to help them, and were the last to come to secure places in East Punjab. He writes, I can recount the name of many well-known well uh, Congress leaders in different districts of Punjab who took help from the RSS for their own security and for the security of their families. They never ignored any call for help. There were many cases where Sangh volunteers took Muslim women and children from Hindu mohallas to Muslim League refugee camps. And when the entire Punjab was on fire and Congress leaders were sitting helplessly in Delhi, at that time, volunteers of the RSS saved the people of Punjab with their discipline and physical strength, risking their own lives. Each and every person from amongst the refugees who came from West Pakistan is indebted to the Sangh. When everyone had abandoned them, only the Sangh stood by them. So this is what he's written. Absolutely. I think it's uh, very important to um, look at this whole in the context of um, this sword of, you, you use the metaphor of a sword, sword of exclusivism and the othering that was happening. And one um, wonders whether the leadership at that time that we had, um, you know, I, I, I don't believe in bashing any kind of, you know, particular configuration, politically speaking, uh, but was quite uh, ineffective in its um, both assessment and deployment of resources um, to kind of safeguard some of these um, uh, stranded people, right? I mean, because uh, we we look at the various activities of the Sangh and the, and the Shakhas that were um, also proactive uh, during this time. Uh, and uh, we will later on address the whole idea or, or the, the whole kind of uh, conundrum of, of Pakistan occupied Kashmir as well. Uh, but one cannot uh, but you know think about the uh, alternate to what Nehru's response was in this period. And therefore, I try to kind of put it in that context of the Nehru report, which was also uh, a very kind of um, a very kind of ineffective way of looking at what could be uh, the possible configuration of India going forward. Um, and it had asked for the dominion status. It had it had not quite consulted across the spectrum. Um, and the same thing followed through during the 1930s, late 1930s and 1940s as well. Um, so so that was a, that was it was good to kind of, you know, look into that in greater detail. Now, uh, coming back to the uh, point about Hindu activism and Hindu interests in this period, um, Sanatan Dharma has been systematically sidelined in the broader societal discourse and consciousness of um, Multan and Pakistan post-partition, as we have seen. And a uh, prime example of this came very early in the story of Pakistan in the form of um, the Hindu leader J.N. Mandal. So Jogendranath Mandal, as, as uh, he was known as, aligned with the Muslim League very early on. And if my memory serves me correct, he was the first minister of law, as well as uh, the chair of the very first session, uh, which was uh, undertaken under uh, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And uh, however, Mandal's tenure was not quite uh, as uh, harmonious or as easy as many others would be. And uh, one of the reasons for that was that he alleged that there was discrimination within the Muslim majority bureaucracy. So following Jinnah's death, for instance, he protested against atrocities on Dalits uh, by Muslim rioters supported by the police and state machinery, uh, leading to a discord with Liaquat Ali Khan, who was the prime minister of Pakistan at that time. And he resigned and in fact came back to India, um, citing the administration's failure to address these injustices. So today, if we look at Pakistan as it stands, uh, there is a sentiment or spirit of primordialism, right, which captures the inwardness of religious and ethnic struggles um, in this garb of almost trying to get to a cosmic struggle for moral authority, right? And this is particularly seen in Pakistani Punjab, uh, where there is a growing concern and indication of Talibanization as well in various certain, I mean, various districts of Punjab, um, such as I think Gujrawala, Jhang, and Sargoda. 
where uh, the influence of the Taliban is so prominent that, in fact, it is said that the administration is partially run by them in certain places. So the Markaz Dawa Wal Virshad, which is the Jamaatud Dawa as we know it in popular parlance, and which is often called as the parent organization of the Lashkar-e-Taiba, uh, is in fact headquartered near Lahore in a place called Muridke. And uh, this center owes its substantial infrastructure to generous donations from Saudi and Gulf benefactors. Um, and uh, this is where we need to look a little more closely at the way in which they have functioned. Um, so they operate various schools in, in Pakistan itself, which provides education in secular subjects, uh, but also looks into more theological or um, civilizational aspects, so to say. Uh, and uh, Jamaat dawas principal tools to secure conversions are often social services, right? Uh, medical care, for instance, disaster relief work, uh, as well as it has a humanitarian relief arm as well, uh, the Falai Insaniyat Foundation or the FIF, uh, which boasts how it provides religious training, even allowing some of the Hindus to enter madrasas as well. Um, so when we talk about Punjab in today's context, Lahore, Gujrawala, uh, Multan, they're all strongholds of the Lashkar-e-Taiba. And uh, within the Pakistan political system as well, uh, let us talk about the Punjab Assembly. Uh, there are eight reserve seats for non-Muslims, and uh, it will be amazing. I mean, it is astonishing even uh, for our viewers and everyone who's uh, um, you know wired into this discussion that the first Hindu who was actually elected to the Punjab State Assembly uh, in Pakistan was a full 50 years after independence in 1997, uh, when, when Seth Bhartas Ram was the first Hindu to be elected to these seats. And so um, when one hears about these things, for instance, in Bhong, where there was a Ganesh temple that was recently assaulted by a mob of around 250 individuals, or there are certain cases where people in the coal project in, in Punjab um, uh, coerced or, or forced a boy uh, to recite Allahu Akbar and insult his own deities, I mean, Hindu deities, um, it only makes us wonder whether we have come significantly far from the times of um, you know, Sardar Milka Singhji, for instance, when we saw his story on, uh, you know, in a cinematic depiction recently, and which was, which was very poignant, which was very uh, painful to watch, essentially. So I would like to know from you, um, what do you think, I mean, in terms of our journey, right, or, or, or rather the journey of Multani Hindus post-partition, um, how has that been and uh, how far along in the positive or the negative direction we are in, uh, in that area? <clears throat> Well, one would struggle to find too much in the way of positives, but uh, this this all starts with the Pakistan Objectives Resolution. So once they get their separate Pakistan, they try to form their own constitution. And right from there, we understand what the state is about, which is also what they campaigned on in 1946. So it states, sovereignty over the entire universe belongs to Allah Almighty alone. And the authority over uh, which he has delegated to, to the state of Pakistan through its people, for being exercised within the limits prescribed by him is a sacred trust. The Muslims shall be enabled to order their lives in the individual and collective spheres in accordance with the teachings and requirements of Islam, as set out in the Holy Quran and Sunnah. So, even at the start of this, and this, this was at a time when Jinnah was still alive, uh, you see opposition leaders like uh, Sri Chandra Chattopadhyay, who was born in Dhaka. So, he said in the Constituent Assembly on March uh, 12th, 1949, when I read, in my conception of the state where different peoples of different religions live, there is no place for religion in the state. Its position must be neutral. No bias for any religion. If necessary, it should help all religions equally. 
no concession, no question of concession or tolerance to any religion. It smacks of an inferiority complex. The state must respect all religions. No smiling face for one and Askan's look for another. The state religion is a dangerous principle. Previous instances are sufficient to warn us not to repeat the blunder. We know people were burnt alive in the name of religion. Therefore, my conception is that sovereignty must rest with the people and not with anybody else. The words equal rights as enunciated by Islam are, I do not use any other word, a camouflage. It's only a hoax to us non-Muslims. There cannot be equal rights as enunciated by Islam. It goes without saying that by introducing the religious question, differences between the majority and minority are being perpetuated for how long nobody knows. And as apprehended by us, the difficulty of interpretation has already arisen. The accepted principle is that the majority, by their fair treatment, must create confidence in the minority. Whereas the honorable mover of the resolution promises respect in place of charity or sufferance for the minority community, the deputy minister, Dr. Qureshi, advises the minority to win the goodwill of the majority through their behavior. In the House of the Legislature also, we find that while the prime minister keeps perfectly to his dictum, others cannot brook that the opposition should function in the spirit of opposition. The demand is that the opposition should remain submissive. That is Dr. Qureshi's way of thinking. Minorities must be grateful for all the benevolence that they get and must never complain about the malevolence that may also be dealt out to them. That is a solution to the minority problem. So this is what he said. Now, to, to go to the question of what happened to the Multani Hindus, those who uh, stayed behind, many of them were forced to convert or barred from employment or even deprived of the right to cremate their debt. And the remaining Hindus mainly live in slums. They've adopted many Muslim-sounding names to hide their identity, uh, in fact, there is a place in a narrow street in Multan where there's a banyan tree where the Hindus keep their murtis and they worship them. Uh, of those who left Multan and came to India, we have to see where the Saraiki language is spoken because that was the language they spoke in Multan. And therefore, it has a it has a distinct vocabulary and grammar that sets it apart from other regional languages like Urdu and Punjabi. We can see it spoken in several parts of India with uh, there being a separate Multani dialect, which you can find in Haryana, in Rajasthan, in Delhi, uh, parts of Uttar Pradesh. In Delhi, especially, there's a place called uh, Multani Danda in Baharganj, where um, thousands of uh, Multani refugees have settled. And uh, I mean, you find Multanis in all kinds of fields. Milka Singh was one that you pointed out. Another sportsman is uh, Gautam Gambhir. Uh, many of them have assimilated into Punjabi or Hindi, but uh, they still consider Saraiki to be a part of their cultural heritage and a distinctive part of their identity. Right. Very well put. I think and that was the, the whole process of assimilation and um, synthesizing, so to say, a novel identity um, post-partition because of uh, the needs of the time as well as a, a more kind of... Um, um, forced manner of doing that, uh, unfortunately, um, has led to some remnants remaining, of course, um, but um, many of the other aspects obviously being subjugated uh, by the state machinery in Pakistan and thereafter because of time, uh, them kind of fading away uh, in, into, into oblivion. Um, now, the thing is, when we're talking about the civilizational ethos and the civilizational milestones, um, we have recently seen the Sri Ram Janmabhumi, Tirth Shetra, Pran Pratishtha, and the uh, importance of temples, of course, cannot be understated within the dharmic um, 
uh, understanding of of the of reality itself uh, simply because we can look at it in various different aspects um some would regard them as uh, places of um uh, worship in 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 the spirit of dwait for instance dwait vedanta uh, others would look at it as energy centers and still others would look at it as uh, centers of civilizational uh, coherence and cohesion um so now when we talk about multan and pakistan uh, we have spoken about the uh, dharmic heritage of multan in our previous interaction as well um, the Prahlad Puri temple in Multan was among the uh, thousand temples attacked in the riots of 1992. And uh, among other recent attacks on Hindu temples, there have been assaults on the Matarani temple in Chachro Sindh on the 26th of January 2020, the Krishna temple in Islamabad on 4th of July 2020, uh, the Hanuman temple in Sindh in Liari uh, on the 17th of August 2020, uh, the Sri Ram Dev Temple in Karyo Ghanwar Sindh on 10th October 2020. And the list goes on. There are there are temples in Nagar Pakar, uh, Sindh, Khyber Pakhtunwa, for instance, and even a century-old temple in Rawalpindi uh, in March of 2021. And more recently, we have seen the 150-year-old Marimata Temple, which was in the news uh, because of it being demolished in Karachi Soldier Bazaar, which is a very um, you know a bustling kind of locality. Um, and has had a certain heritage and history of, of associated with it. So um, when we talk about temples, a survey carried out by the All-Pakistan Hindu Rights Movement said that out of the 428 Hindu temples in Pakistan, uh, only around 20 survive today. So uh, as one of the last standing bastions of, of uh, dharmic kind of um, identity, um, India, I mean, Bharat and uh, all of us, uh, you know, how do you see us standing up for these, uh, the rights and heritage which still remain in Pakistan, uh, because it's it's extremely pertinent to kind of look at it in a greater way and in a more urgent manner, so to say. <clears throat> Absolutely. It, it's our heritage as well, and it's more our responsibility to try and protect it than anyone else, because there is nobody else to stand up for the, these temples. But let's start with understanding what exactly happened after partition. So because all the Sikhs, Hindus, and Jains departed from Muldan, most, almost all of them, uh, the, the temples and shrines and other uh, religious and cultural sites were mostly abandoned or destroyed, and many of them were repurposed for other uses. Because the demographic became overwhelmingly Muslim, and this is true across Pakistan, except in uh, maybe Tarparkar, Nagarparkar, and some of these uh, areas of Sindh which are bordering uh, Rajasthan, what, what is called uh, Mirpur Khas Division. Of sin. So that except that area, Muslims are a huge majority in every other uh, part of Pakistan, and there most of the temples, like you said, have been demolished. And because of this, much of the Dharmic heritage has been lost, and people are not even aware that this existed there before. Uh, their education system doesn't teach them that they sometimes there might be some temples in certain mohallas which uh, many people don't even recognize that that used to be a temple and now it's a residential space. And uh, it takes careful inspection to even identify that it was, in fact, a temple. But why is it that this is happening? So, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the Pralatpuri temple itself remains as just a wall, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yes. Yeah, one wall remains. And that's a, such an unfortunate kind of, you know, because the entire Prahlad, uh, the myth of I mean, the, the whole story of, of, of Prahlad and uh, uh, Sri Narasimha is kind of oriented around that. And uh, our viewers will be um, shocked, but also uh, it's understandable, right, that there is a there is a mosque that stands right next to uh, this, the, the temple itself. And it's more, more or less the, the wall of the temple that remains in, in current day. Um, yeah. <clears throat> 
So the best person to explain why this is happening is Jinnah himself. In 1943, with a, with, in an interview with uh, British journalist Beverly Nichols, he says, Islam is not only a religious doctrine, but also a realistic code of conduct in terms of every day and every, everything important in life, our history, our laws, and our jurisprudence. In all these things, our outlook is not only fundamentally different, but also opposed to the Hindus. There is nothing in life that links us together. Our names, clothes, food, festivals, and rituals all are different. Our economic life, our educational ideas, treatment of women, attitude towards animals, and humanitarian considerations are all very different. So at the time of Pakistan's creation, there's this, there was this theory called the hostage population theory. According to the theory, the Hindu minority in Pakistan would, uh, would be held hostage, essentially, to ensure the, the protection of the Muslim minority in India. But the second prime minister of Pakistan, Kawaja Nazimuddin, he states, I do not agree that religion is a private affair of the individual, nor do I agree that in an Islamic state, every citizen has identical rights, no matter what his caste, creed, or faith may be. So it is very clear that from the start, Hindus are second-class citizens, and Hindu religious institutions have no uh, expectation to necessarily be respected or protected. So if you want to protect these institutions now, or to revive some of these uh, temples that, that have been, restore some of these temples that have been destroyed, it would have to go to the root of Pakistan's ideology itself. And the state itself needs to rethink what it stands for. So that to achieve that level of change, India needs to focus on uh, increasing its own comprehensive national power, both in military terms as well as economic and other means of achieving hegemony within the subcontinent and uh, finding ways to have a carrot and stick approach to Pakistan which I don't think will bear fruit in the near term. But over the long term, the idea is that within Pakistan, it must be a two-step process. First, set the preconditions. Do the reporting. Drive public opinion. Prime the politicians. And next, you take action. You change the law. You shift the incentive structure. The goal is to move towards a system with a rigorous and fair process that respects Hindus and uh, rights of all minorities and treats people equally under the law which means they would have their right to religion and uh, practice of religion protected. And some subset of Pakistanis do support this kind of system. But at this point, most politicians are still too fearful to take it on. And one can understand why. So unless the politics of the issue shifts in a, in a big way, for which we need to make the effort, um, I don't think this can be done in a short period of time. So the premise is, there has to be three, three, three lines of effort. The narrative line, which is the emotion around it, that's the first one, which is why uh, we're having these conversations and uh, I wrote that Multan article. I mean, I, I had a lot of Pakistanis reach out to me about it. So hopefully that's uh, a start to that. The next would be the policy line, which is the intellectual side of things. And then there's the action line, which is creating the will to do it. So for Pakistani Hindu activists to be successful, we have to help them drive all three lines to converge on the stated goal, which is, in this case, restoring temples. Absolutely. I think um, it's a very comprehensive um, um, perspective that we need to have because um, when we talk about various, um, for instance, Hindu phobia, right, and, and the opposition of Hindus as well, um, if one were to look at these Western the Western countries and and the way in which it happens, it is a very uh, multi-tiered kind of approach where the ecosystem works in in a certain manner, right? Which is which is sometimes disruptive, uh, which is sometimes uh, kind of you know looking at the existing structures in place and uh, how to kind of harness that, capitalize on that. 
Uh, now, the question is that when we have uh, things like the education system in Pakistan itself uh, oriented in a certain manner, right, right from primary to middle school itself, the media itself, of course, having a certain brazen kind of bias um, uh, in, in certain different uh, areas of coverage, um, one wonders whether this narrative change that you're talking about, right, and the reflection within policy uh, is something that is possible uh, in a in a sure-footed manner, in a definite manner, uh, anytime soon. So you do mention that there is a little bit of uh, a time kind of uh, lapse that we need to look for before this happens uh, within the Pakistani system. But uh, I think we are quite far from that, uh, honestly, because uh, having looked at some of these educational and pedagogical elements, uh, the elements of narratives within the society itself, uh, and and surprisingly, uh, even intellectuals, right? Even Pakistani intellectuals in Western spaces vouching for some of these elements uh, in, in in a very kind of um, uh, might I say explosive manner, even uh, is is something which is really concerning, right? So uh, I think it yeah. So it, it it requires a massive civilizational push, right? As well as a diplomatic and a political solution. Right, right at the very top of of the world structure or the you know international diplomatic circle, so to say. Absolutely, it it would have to be enough to shift the incentives for the establishment that governs Pakistan, and right. not only shift the in, uh, incentives in terms of just doing cosmetic changes, but to actually build state capacity to to protect the minorities, uh, to bring laws that are able to preserve equal rights and some degree of freedom and dignity for the minorities. Right. For them to have the incentive to do that, it, it requires tremendous international pressure and right. uh, perhaps things like export controls need to be uh, explored. We would have to find ways to isolate the regime from uh, its current allies, the ones who are helping them uh, financially and giving them debts and so on. It, it would have to be a comprehensive all of the above effort. Absolutely. And I think, I think it's very important to look at how these incidences are being reported as well. For instance, uh, you mentioned about this um, tagging and tracking kind of, of these incidences. Uh, in March 2023, if I'm not mistaken, there was this incident which happened uh, in uh, uh, this uh, Kanpur, the Kanpur police station, um, around, around the area of interest in our conversation today, uh, where there was um, alleged arresting of the Hindu shopkeepers, some specific Hindu shopkeepers for allegedly uh, violating the Ramzan ordinance. Uh, there also have been incidences with students in various different universities where um, Islamic student organizations have worked within, for instance, Punjab University as well in uh, Lahore, uh, where they have stopped them from celebrating Holi, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in a very brazen display of Hindu phobia, might I add. Um, so there is a need for kind of looking at these and having the, the a repository of these various incidences before taking this battle forward or this uh, Rather, might I say, reconciliation, but on on terms that are not um, um, you know weaker for us, right, and which work in our interests, uh, in the civilizational interests that we are talking about. Um, I would like to bring the conversation a little towards this aspect of the proxy war that Pakistan has been undertaking uh, over time, and um, this uh, the proxy war is obviously that of um, state-sponsored terrorists, uh, which have. Uh, which has been spoken about in various different international platforms. And in fact, there was a very comprehensive analysis by the Sabin Center for Middle East uh, Policy at the Brookings Institute in 2008, uh, which said that, uh, you know, with the exception of Iran, uh, Pakistan is probably the world's most active sponsor of terrorist groups. 
And uh, so when we're talking about Pakistan and its um, uh, and its unholy, might I say, or um, you know, uh, unpack <laughs> to use the term that we had used in a previous question. Uh, designs essentially uh, not only has it sponsored these elements right but it also has looked at actively working with um, various powers in the world geopolitics uh, which are not working for uh, in, in india's interests um, obviously the big elephant in the room would be china right and the economic aspects thereof and even if you were to look at the strategic missile systems of Pakistan, it's very interesting to see that they are named after uh, the likes of Ghori and Ghazni, right, who were Islamist invaders who had wrecked havoc on Bharatiya society. So when one talks about how to kind of bring Pakistan around in terms of being uh, a much better neighbor, so to say, right, because uh, definitely Markande Kadju's uh, idea of reunification is not uh, happening anytime soon, if at all, uh, and not that we may be going in that direction uh, in the first place. But uh, if you were to look at how to kind of spur that from within, because we had we have had this discussion in other uh, points of interest, um, how can that be done in a manner where society reinforces the need for this reconciliation, um, not from the space of exclusivism and, um, you know, and, and, and going against the interests of India, but from a greater interest in having uh, sustainability and peace within the South Asian subcontinent. Question. Uh, there's a book written by uh, Paul Kapoor. Um, it's, it's titled uh, Jihad as Grand Strategy, Islamist Militancy, National Security and the Pakistani State. And uh, I'll quote what he says. So he says that uh, Pakistani abandonment of jihad will require revolutionary change analogous to the Soviet empire's dissolution under Mikhail Gorbachev. Pakistan facing India resembles a fish that cannot stop swimming. It must continue to move in an oppositional direction if it is to survive in its current ide ideological form. Reconsidering jihad would thus require an intellectual reformulation of the Pakistani state. And this is something that uh, scholars like Christine Fair also talk about, how uh, Pakistan is not a security maximizing state in the international system. It is a greedy ideological state. And what does that mean for India? So Pakistan, uh, since 1947, has always engaged in religious warfare. They have suffered from material and domestic political weakness so severe that it threatened the new state's viability from the beginning. And in 1971, it did break up as well. Uh, so Pakistan's leaders de decided that it would need to become a Muslim state. It could not simply serve as a secular state for Muslims. That was the only way to keep the country together. So the new country would have to become a state based on a concept meaningful to the majority of ordinary Pakistanis, regardless of their ethnic, economic, or geographical interests or backgrounds. So with this as the state founding ideology, Pakistan mm -hmm. always saw all Indian subcontinental Muslims as constituting a single nation, single nation of the faithful. And it was fundamentally a revisionist project, and it was opposed to the territorial status quo in the Indian subcontinent. So as long as Pakistani leaders believe in this negative identity, focused on opposition to so-called Hindu India, and they think that that is the only way to effectively unify their country, I don't think it is going to be possible to change the time. But you know, uh, that's where... 
Yeah, Deepak, if, if I mean, we were to talk about the, the premise of this uh, othering, so to say, right? And uh, that's where, again, the whole discussion around Multan and Punjab obviously comes into the picture again, right? These disparate groups which were working from different premises, right? Some who were uh, extremely orthodox, some who were very uh, kind of secular and modern in their, um, you know, cosmopolitanism, so to say, uh, were actually uh, negotiating a lot of the nitty gritties of how Pakistan and what Pakistan would be, right? And uh, one wonders whether one can kind of look at those um, uh, you know, cracks and crevices, so to say, right? Those those interstices of these discussions and negotiations, right? To look at whether the the orientation of Pakistan and at its most fundamental, right, is 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 inherently um, you know uh, contradictory, right? In many different aspects, uh, be it the premise of religion itself, or be it the various other uh, elements of statecraft that it has molded over time. <clears throat> Absolutely. I, I think that's the only way we can uh, look at it. So that is why I mentioned changing the incentives of the establishment. And that would have to do with, uh, like, look at the Pashtun uh, Tahfuz movement now, for example. It's a peaceful protest movement. And Pakistan might know what to do with violent insurgencies. It has never really encountered a peaceful movement of this nature. One might even say that it this movement traces its intellectual lineage to Khan Abdul Uh So we will need to back these kind of uh, essentially find these contradictions within Pakistani society and exacerbate right. and find ways to realign the incentives of the establishment. And that will have to do with, uh, I mean, you would have to essentially wage economic warfare on them as well to some degree. Right, and and I think even the 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 Valochi uh, kind of you know the the insurgency as they call it, right? Of course, and uh, there are various other elements with the Iran conflict recently as well, which one has to look into. Uh, so there are many different dynamics, uh, obviously the economic and the political, which are of importance. And if one can kind of look at a more comprehensive way to handle this, I think that would be a very good thing for us uh, in our immediate vicinity and neighborhood. Now, um, coming to Multan um, once again, and uh, and looking at sorry. yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, if if they feel that uh, this kind of uh, terrorism that they've incited against us is is viable as a as a state strategy, we must prove right. to them that it's going to hurt them more than it hurts us. Right. Now, according to some reports, uh, they've lost more uh, economic. Uh, they've they've suffered more economic damage due to the insurgency in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa in right. the past twenty odd years than they did in the nineteen seventy one war with us. Right. And they've lost uh, tens of thousands of lives, according to some reports, even as high as uh, 168,000. So this is not something that they are taking lightly. or uh, It is something that is worrying the establishment there. You see regular Taliban attacks against uh, soldiers and, and military uh, installations. So it is something that they have to grapple with. And at some point, we have to hope that their incentives change to the point where they realize this is a monster that's come back to uh, attack them. Right. And I think also in terms of um, the political kind of response of India, right? I mean, in terms of the manner in which uh, it is allowed to kind of have a tangible effect on the geopolitics of South Asia, I think that is of importance as well. And therefore, the natural kind of extension of this discussion obviously takes us to the, um, the theme of Pakistan-occupied Kashmir. Um, and uh, it is particularly of significance because uh, of the geopolitics of South Asia, of 
course, but also because of the dharmic heritage that it has had uh, with places like Sharda Peet um, and Hinglaj Mata Mandir, for instance. Um, and it has again come back into the popular discourse with uh, uh, various union ministers talking about it. So, of course, we have um, the former Indian Army chief, uh, uh, General V.K. Singh, who expressed this belief that POK will come by itself uh, without external intervention back uh, towards the Indian fold. Uh, then we have had um, Sri Amit Shahji kind of talking about this idea of this convoluted nature of uh, POK being because of Nehru's response uh, back in the day. So one has to kind of look at this more closely, right? Because uh, there were a number of strategic failures on the part of our uh, first government, unfortunately. And uh, personally, as a as, as a student of history, I, I really like to focus on a specific aspect of this problem, which is that of uh, Gilgit-Baltistan, for instance. Uh, and uh, one has to look at how the Gilgit-Baltistan problem was actually uh, resolved by the involvement of the Gilgit Scouts, uh, which was a diverse force comprising of individuals from across Kashmir, um, and they overthrew the regional governor and voluntarily surrendered thereafter to Pakistan. So uh, one can, you know, talk about whether we should blame the Gilgit scouts uh, as to why they uh, did that, because there were also British officers serving in the scouts. And uh, there was also the problem of inaction of the governments of Kashmir and India. Uh, and in this, there is a very tricky aspect which has to be looked at more closely, that Gilgit-Baltistan was not naturally a part of Jammu and Kashmir uh, because of a certain uh, paramountcy of a British agreement that was signed in 1935. And uh, this was actually first negotiated back in 1892, when the British wanted to have this uh, small piece of a buffer state um, to kind of um, counter leverage against the Russians uh, and maintain order and stability in this region. So when the British left uh, in 1947, or actually, uh, in fact, if you go a year back, uh, there was a lot of discussion as to how this whole aspect of Gilgit-Baldistan should be renegotiated. And uh, this is where there was a historic blunder, uh, I would say, by uh, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru, because uh, he, in fact, postponed the retrocession of Gilgit, right, which was the uh, political move that had to be done at that period of time. And uh, this was also problematic because there were lots of different parts of Gilgit-Baltistan, uh, which didn't quite want to join Pakistan entirely for a while. So, for instance, until 1951, the regions of Darel and Tangir keep up, kept up a certain kind of resistance. Uh, then you have the Mirs of Hunza and Nagar, uh, who kept their autonomy, in fact, up to 1972. Um, so there have been a lot of different problems within these areas, uh, particularly because the Pakistan judicial system does not quite apply to this area, uh, primarily because it has been under the Frontiers Crimes Regulation Act, the FCR. Um, and thereafter, in 1974, uh, the Azad Jammu and Kashmir Interim Constitution Act was enacted as well, uh, which made um, the state of Pakistan leverage Islam to suppress certain kinds of ethnic identi identities within uh, the northern provinces. Uh, rather than addressing the issues that were confronting these various uh, ethnic groups. Um, and so there has been a lot of churning, so to say, within the northern provinces. And Pakistan, on its part, of course, has been keeping a tight leash um, with, for instance, recently, uh, I was reading about these telecom towers that have come up in the line of control, along the line of control in POK. Uh, and the purpose, of course, is to facilitate uh, various terrorists and their associates in carrying out infiltration activities. Um, so as an Indian, as a, as a, as a Hindu, uh, and as someone who has been looking at this very closely, 
uh, especially given that the Indian Parliament still has 24 reserve seats for uh, you know representatives from POK. Um, how do you see this as a very uh, important lesson or an example, right? Uh, in terms of how we should politically, right, as well as economically, of course, uh, tackle these points of dispute, uh, which are actually facilitated for all good reason by non-state actors like back in the day in the 1947 period, there were these tribal you know, uh, leaders who were supposedly acting out of their own free will, but actually were proxy warriors for the Pakistan army. It was a great missed opportunity, as you pointed out. And I think uh, we've come to regret it in the time since. But uh, at the very least, we must start making plans now to eventually uh, retake control of, of what is now called POK, particularly Gilgit Baltistan, which is very important because that is where Pakistan and China now have a border, which of course we don't recognize as being Pakistani territory, but de facto they have a border. Uh, it is through that that the seabank goes. And uh, if we had control over this region, we would have a border with Afghanistan and through uh, the Wakhan corridor to Central Asia and then to Russia and so forth. So this is strategically very important territory. It is also the area known as the third pole of the world. Uh, it is uh, geolog geologically and uh, for climate reasons, very important. It's very water rich. We as a country are water starved. So for a number of reasons, this area is really critical for us. But now let's look at the political angle of it. Um, we have to first be very clear in all of our messaging that the people of Pakistan or the people of Gilgit Pakistan or the people of what they call Azad Kashmir are not our enemies. Uh, once Bangladesh separated from Pakistan, we've had friendly relations with them. And while we may have the occasional problem with them here and there, we are by and large happy to see them do well. And we wish nothing but the best for the Pakistanis as well. It's just that because they have ideologically oriented their state against us, we have no choice but to, do the, uh, to take the actions that we're taking. Right? So it's entirely up to them to change their state's orientation to make it more favorable and we can have good relations with them. We would like to have good relations with them. We've always wanted good relations with them. Now, keeping that in mind, we have to appeal to the people of POK that they are Indian citizens. We will recognize them as Indian citizens. It is up to them to overthrow their state and rejoin India. Uh, will the Pakistani state deteriorate there to the extent that they can overthrow it? It's very hard to see that happening because Pakistan is a very robust state. Uh, the security state is not as weak as, uh, say, what was there in Afghanistan in 2021 when the state just melted away. So we will still have to work with the people to build a, a popular movement. But at the same time, we have to put pressure on Pakistan itself. At this point, I, a military option is not advisable simply because we're both nuclear powers. And uh, this is just extremely hard terrain to fight in. Now, it, it may be that uh, this would go under the nuclear threshold. That is something for the experts to determine. But even then, the, the terrain is so difficult for us from our side because of the high mountains that um, I would say that our military industrial complex needs to be much more effective before a military option becomes even viable. And even then, it should be a last resort, not the first resort. So we should look at every other possibility of retaking control of, of the POK. And um, again, it comes down to comprehensive national power and making an example of our our side of Kashmir, developing it to the point where, I think this is what the government is also talking about, developing, developing it to the point where the people on the other side of Kashmir look at it and think, this is what we would like to have too. And 
if we could just have a chance, we could also have all of this development, all of this uh, tourism and everything else. So yeah. I would say it has to be, again, uh, on all fronts, you, you need to make the, the effort at, at the societal level, you need to make the international diplomatic effort uh, we need to have a version of China's one China, uh, sorry one one China policy. So we have to have a one India policy and make sure every country recognizes that territory as being part of India, as being occupied by Pakistan. Right now, not too many countries do that. Uh, so it would have to our place in the international system would have to change. We would need to be more robust um, in terms of uh, having our ability to manufacture our own weapons and wage war for a continuous period of time. Because even if you don't intend to wage war. The ability to do it gives you the opportunity to negotiate from a place of strength. I, I think, I think would... yeah, yeah, there are some some aspects here, though. I mean, in terms of a military solution, I don't think that's um, tenable, I mean, as such, because as you rightly pointed out, um, we are both uh, military, I mean, nuclear powers. Um, also, there is this whole discussion around whether Bangladesh can be emulated again, again in terms of POK. But I think the the, the dynamics are extremely different as well. One has to identify that uh, because Bangladesh, when it was uh, East Pakistan, was actually demographically the more stronger of the two, right? So it was it in fact had the more more of the numbers, right? There was also uh, the Awami League and various other, uh, you know, bodies which were very active, proactive, uh, and they had won the election uh, back in 1970-71 because of which the entire thing got precipitated. Um, so whereas in in POK, unfortunately, what has happened is with the 1974 uh, uh, Amendment Act uh, by uh, by the Pakistan government and uh, also the FCR, which was done a, a little earlier than that, um, there is a lot of kind of uh, centralization of power and clamping down in a very kind of uh, um, in, a, in a much bigger way, right, than it was uh, possibly in uh, Bangladesh. And uh, so therefore, we can see these sporadic incidences which are happening, right, on the on the border areas. And of course, uh, the commendable work by the Indian government today in, in Jammu and Kashmir um, with the development projects, sorry, in, in, in various places, for instance, in railways and so on and so forth, has been something which the people on that side have looked at as well. Right. So I, I feel that it is it is about, um, um, you know, a, a more protracted battle that will happen, of course. Right. Because I, I think the dynamics are very different and the personal um, and, and the and the other geopolitical powers or stakeholders. Right. For instance, China. Right. I mean, um, it doesn't quite make sense for them or various other stakeholders. Right. Uh, China just being one of many others um, for it to be kind of changed, the dynamics to be changed all that much in that particular area. Right. Um, and, and the CPEC, of course, and various other um, initiatives that have been undertaken there. So, um, yeah, I think I think it's going to be a long battle, so to say. <clears throat> it's going to be a very long battle. And and like you said, I, I agree with you. I, I don't advocate the military option. I just think we need to build up the strength so that if we don't, we cannot negotiate with them. We wouldn't be credible. Right. The military right. option has to be on the table for us to be able to have a negotiated solution or any other kind of solution. But at, at the same time, I agree with everything you're saying. I think uh, other interests are aligned with Pakistan in them holding on to that territory. And that is something that we're going to have to negotiate. Our place in the international system itself needs to be very different from what it is now. Um, our economic strength has to be much larger. And um, we would have to be independent in terms of certain technological platforms and things like that. So that in case we are slapped with sanctions, we are able to withstand that. We need to be more integrated into global supply chains. Uh, so there's a lot of things that we need to think about. It's, it's not going to be a short-term process, but in the long run, I don't think we should cede our claim over the POK. I think it was unfairly taken from us. 
the instrument of accession, of course, was signed by the Maharaja, and he only had the sovereignty to decide whether to join Pakistan or India. And as such, uh, our claims are valid, and I think we should continue to prosecute those claims, however long it may take. Right. So um, this has been a fascinating discussion. Um, so I'd, I'd like to bring this around, essentially, uh, kind of looking at something which has been an important part of politics and geopolitics of our times, uh, which is that of soft power, right, and cultural memory. Uh, in fact, one of the prime examples of uh, the exercise of soft power would be probably Japan um, after the Second World War and the manner in which they have um, not quite in terms of tangible hard power, but in terms of soft power, um, spread across, right, uh, in, in various disparate areas of uh, culture and society. Um, I would love to know from you whether the, the dharmic heritage of Multan, right, and the cultural memory of Multan, uh, as well as Greater Punjab and Pakistan, uh, when it comes to Hindu populations or the dharmic cross-section of society, uh, with things like, for instance, uh, uh, Multani Mitti, uh, right? There are various culinary kind of aspects like moat kachoris, right? They're very kind of well-known as well as mukundvaris, right? There are these uh, substitutes for meat, uh, which has been quite prevalent in uh, Multan. Uh, how can these be kind of made more um, a part of the popular kind of imagination of what Multan or that, you know, uh, place has been, uh, not only from 1947, but from a much bigger kind of perspective, um, so as to kind of uh, reclaim as well as integrate uh, that dharmic heritage with us as we go along into the future. <clears throat> so uh, one way to do that is to look at what the Jews did when they did not have sovereignty over Israel for nearly 2,000 years. But they kept it in their cultural memory. They they, they would say next year in Jerusalem during Passover. Um, so there were all these ways in which it, it was integrated into the cultural memory, into the narrative, into their education system. Um, I think our education system needs to give people a sense of this is what we've lost as a result of partition. It, it was the defining uh, experience of the subcontinent. And this is what we must hold on to protect uh, until such time as we are able to restore it. And and so that has to be there. Uh, and like you said, uh, Multani Miti is a, is a good example of how you can hold on to cultural memory. It's it, For those who don't know, it's a, it's a type of clay that's used as a traditional purifier and a cleanser. Uh, it's used in many parts of India even today. And uh, the clay comes from Multan originally. So it's known for its ability to purify and cleanse. And it, it's believed to have detoxifying and cleansing properties. So it's used as an alternative shampoo, to shampoo in certain places. And um, it's used as a sacred uh, purifier as well. It's used in skincare treatments. So things like this, uh, Multani dishes like Multani Moth Kachori, all of these retain that cultural memory. And at least at an Indian level, we need to retain it. But at the same time, of course, like we discussed, uh, in Pakistan also, we need to work to change the narrative. It's like, it's essentially like subverting a society from outside. And how do you do that? Uh, through, so they share language with us. They, they watch a lot of our pop culture. They consume a lot of media from India. And that's only going to grow in the years to come. So how, do, how can you maybe use those uh, media to transmit cultural uh, values and such to the Pakistanis to tell them that, uh, hey, you're, you were the same as us as, at one point and you could still be. And this is your heritage as well. 
and this is your history and these were your ancestors and this is who you were at one point and that is not something that you should uh feel ashamed of because that's the, the, there was the, there was a lot of achievement in that and and great accomplishment and a lot to be proud of in your own heritage uh which you should not shun and that's that's the message i think we should be transmitting to them um of course india itself has so many cities and monuments and temples that uh need to be restored and much has been forgotten our own history has to be rethought and rewritten uh so much has to be done but uh, we have to keep the memory alive until the day we get an opportunity to rebuild the prahlad puri temple to restore dharma to pakistan and i don't mean this in the sense of like converting everyone in pakistan that's not what i'm saying of course everyone has free will to pursue whatever religion they want but to make it safe for people uh to follow dharmic faiths in pakistan again absolutely absolutely i think uh, the importance of this uh, cannot be understated and uh, i think there is a whole cycle of evolution that happens in any kind of framework um, uh, be it you know theological uh, political cultural civilizational and uh, i think there is a element of exclusivism whenever there is something in a nascent stage right it is at a fairly early stage and as as and when maturity comes along i think there is a natural brand of cosmopolitanism that comes about right so we need to work with that uh, you know the kal chakra as we call it in 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 dharmic thought right and also building in terms of our synergies uh, in that direction um so it has been a real pleasure uh, deepak to speak to you about these uh, speak with you about these various elements of interest um and uh, any parting thoughts for our viewers well i would say um as countries grow richer when they reach a certain per level of per capita income they start becoming a lot more interested in their nation uh, nation and their national history and nationalism in general it could even turn into hyper nationalism pakistan is going to go through that stage and so we have to start laying the groundwork now for them to rethink their nationalism as they hit that stage and once they go through that economic transition uh which changes societies changes how people uh, uh, how much they value life how much they're willing to go fight uh we see wealthier countries uh, there's less willingness to go wage war uh, on on behalf of your country so all of these trends are going to take hold in pakistan as well their fertility rates are dropping uh so many things are happening so i think we need to take advantage of everything that modernity brings in terms of social change and make sure that that drives pakistan in a direction more favorable to us than in a direction that goes against us which is also very possible absolutely and beautifully put i think we need to use the uh the current kind of stage of history uh in a broader perspective and uh, look at building on those uh cornerstones so to say uh such that the entire region has a certain sustainable development as we go along um and as the buzzword today kind of you know purports to um in 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 a responsible manner so i'd like to thank you deepak for joining us today and uh, we'll continue with our discussions with uh, satyesh samvad um going forward with uh, professor rk kotnala in the next uh, edition where we'll be talking about a more dharmic perspective when it comes to science and technology and engineering um in the domain of energy uh, as well as in terms of the pure sciences as well thank you for joining us today and uh, see you next time namaskar thank you 
So thank you for joining us today in today's uh, rather interesting and multifaceted discussion. Uh, we are really looking forward to the responses and questions from the audiences. And uh, we could potentially have a live event going forward uh, in the first half of March of 2024. And uh, therefore, we would like you to uh, write to us in the comments section uh, with your questions and specific points regarding the discussion today. Thank you. Thank you.